I think I was going to put like humps on wheels or something. <laughs> oh I don't gosh. know. <laughs> Have you put that idea aside? Yeah, now? I put that yeah. aside. That, that, <laughs> okay, that, good, yeah. that died quite quickly. I think that might be a major step back right <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Nourished by Spinneys, the podcast which promises to inspire you to eat well and live well. I'm Tiffany Eslick. And I'm Devina Devecha. Welcome to a space where we hope to nourish your heart and soul. On this show, we chat with leading players in the food community, from farmers to foodies, as well as health and well-being experts. It's all about engaging conversations and fresh ideas. Today, we're chatting with Dina Mackey, who is the author of Bahari, the first cookbook on Omani cuisine by an Omani author. That sounds really exciting. Um, when does the book actually come out? So in just a few days, okay. um, on the 1st of February, actually, one day before my birthday. <laughs> but you can pre-order it now. Um, Dina, of course, brought me a copy when she came to see us a couple of weeks ago. I love how you stuck your birthday into that. That was uh, great. Um, but going back to the cookbook <laughs> and today's episode, um, Dina also made us a couple of recipes from the book, uh, which all of us had for lunch after the recording, which was brilliant. Yes, she cooked us two dishes, the kubs maduf, which is a date parata. And the samaki wakupaka, which is a fish coconut curry. You know, it was so much fun cooking with Dina. She's become a really good friend over the years. And I've tried some of her aunts and extended family's food. Um, so it was nice to try her, her cooking. And if I'm not wrong, she was with you as well when you visited Zanzibar a few years ago? Yes, indeed. Okay. Uh, we spent about five days just traveling around Zanzibar, eating as many different things as we could. Sounds great. Um, you know, Zanzibar used to be under the Sultanate of Amman, starting in the 1700s. So Amani cuisine has quite a bit of influence from Africa. And then from the east, you have influences from India through the trading routes. And then you have some Bahraini and Iraqi influence in Dina's own family as well. And her growing up in Portsmouth, where her grandmother and mother preserved so much of their cooking and their recipes, which Dina has both tested and documented in the book, which, as I mentioned, is the first one by an Omani cook. I say this, but we cannot forget all of the aunties in Oman who made their own versions with yeah. measurements that were all questionable. But yes, the first one that's published and yeah, by Hermione Alta. Can you believe it's done? No. I think, okay, in general, the whole process was a bit wild because if I think about it, it was in 2020, I was listening to a, another author do a cookbook talk about how to get published and she made it seem so easy. And that was her whole point. She was trying to like get rid of that stereotypicalness that you had to be really famous and that's the only way you were going to get the deal. 2021 comes along and I get stuck in Oman for like six months. So I was like... Mm -hmm. I need to figure this out. And I was like, I'm going to use this time to travel around Oman as much as possible and finish this proposal. And it was good because we were in lockdown, had nowhere to go. And so we had curfew. So we could be out during the day and I was wandering around everywhere trying to discover Oman with different Omanis. And then I was writing all through the night. And so then 2021 in the summer, I got my literary agent. And again, I was super lucky. She fell in love with the proposal instantly. So I, I found her really quickly. Then she spent another nine months working on my proposal. And that almost, I think that was heartbreaking because I thought, oh, maybe it's not good enough. I'm never going to get this deal. Um, and then August in 2022, yeah, 2022, I got the cookbook deal. And that's when everything began. And it was hectic, but I obviously was unorganized and didn't start the whole like final process until like December in 2022 and then it was just craziness even when we went to Zanzibar it was yeah. craziness I had like my mom helping me test recipes at home it's a whole madness I mean I remember so Dina and I we were in Zanzibar on a trip for Spinneys um discovering delicious foods in Zanzibar 
And um, I remember like we'd have a whole day out and then you were like, oh, I actually have to go and like edit some recipes and like yeah. write a whole bunch of paragraphs for intros to the recipes. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, how are you doing this? Yeah. And I tried yeah. to use that trip as well. I was like, oh, this is going to be some more inspiration. It's going to help the words come out. Yeah, yeah. it was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot. But I can't imagine. I think if I was given extra months, I probably still would have come down to the chaos of doing it last minute. But yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, the, it's a skill as creatives have, right? Yes. <laughs> we thrive under this insane yes. pressure how many times did you test every single recipe and how did you find all the choose all the recipes and find those recipes i know do you know yeah. what even till today sometimes i'm like oh i feel like i should have added this recipe and that recipe but hopefully more books to come um i had so when i was doing my proposal i had already begun testing recipes then and because i'd been on instagram posting lots of recipes before i still had like a backlog um and so i think when i started the process i was already about 40 40 solid recipes I was happy with that and mainly because we always made them at home a lot so I was confident on them and then the other there's over 80 recipes in the book so the other 40 I knew I wanted to do and I maybe made them once or twice but I had no clue how those measurements were going and so I remember in January of 2023 I literally was like okay I'm gonna make six recipes a day for 30 days and we're gonna get through this <laughs> it was really stupid of me but that's how I did it and like it was the only way I could do it and it was a constant and I what was mad is I decided to move into my grandmother's house um in Portsmouth and I told my mum to also move into her house and think she has a one-bedroom flat and I decided we were all going to cook in her tiny little kitchen and test all of these so you're all still talking to each other oh yeah we did not like each other by the end of it no one wanted to see food by the end of it and the whole process was just I just knew I had all these recipes that I collected over the years and ideas but I just never knew what to do with them. So the book was a place where I just kind of had to let it all out. And so tell me about how it's broken down in the book okay. um, between Oman and Zanzibar. And yeah. yeah. So originally when we did the chapters, I had just gone for normal chapters of meat, fish, veg, the usual. And as I was writing the essays there in the book, I was like, none of this makes sense. I was like, it's so boring to just put in those categories. Mm -hmm. I was like, because it doesn't make sense to the dishes and it doesn't do them justice. So I was like, no, I was at the whole point of of me calling the book Bahari was because it was about how the ocean allows us to travel and migrate and how we've been able to get all of these dishes and even some of the recipes that I have from growing up in England are in there so that's all because of the ocean traveling so I was like I need to include these sense of places to make sense of the dishes so we decided to go with um chapters which were Muscat and then Zanzibar the coast interior and Portsmouth mm -hmm. um, and those were the perfect way to kind of sum up Oman's food and its journey so the coast really reflected all of the migration and history from um, whether that was from Baluchistan coming to Oman um, parts of like India coming to Oman and just everyone really and even like the rest of the Swahili coast it also reflects that then Zanzibar was its core of things that I've been taught by my grandmother and our family and things that were actually different than if you would come from the Swahili coast, like Kenya or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then Muscat was important because there were so many dishes that I talk about, um, even like the day parata that we're going to make. And that was like only specific to one type of family or couple of families. And they were only in Muscat. So I was like, okay, Muscat's in its own place because Muscat was really important at one point in time. Um, and then interior was from all my journeys, traveling through the interior and going into the mountains, um, going down to Salala and into their mountains. And their dishes are so special. And actually no one, not many people in Oman know those dishes. So 
I had to find a way to just include them all. And I think that was the best. Yeah, no, it sounds like a beautiful way to sum it up, you know. Yeah. Can you tell, I mean, I know your family history and it was fascinating meeting some of your family in Zanzibar yeah. um, in January last year. But um, tell us how your family, how you got to Portsmouth and just like, yeah, the, the sort of rich history of your family, the Amani and yeah. the Zanzibari side. So, yeah, very lucky that my mother's side were all born in Zanzibar. Um, but it's a bit, it's, it's all kind of broken up. So my mum's dad's side have Iranian influence and Omani influence, but then came to live in Zanzibar. And so my grandfather was born there as well. Um, my grandmother's side, her family came from Oman, but her dad actually came from Africa and they all settled in Zanzibar and lived there. So there's that background. And then on my dad's side, he was born and bred in Muscat in Oman, um, but he has Bahraini and Iraqi ancestry. Um, so we actually have a lot of Bahraini influence in, in our food as well, which is really, really nice. And then the reason I came along in Portsmouth was because when in 1964, um, Zanzibar, so Oman and Zanzibar used to be together and then Zanzibar became part of Tanzania. And so everyone that was part of the Omani Zanzibar community either went to Oman or they had the choice to come to England and specifically a little place called Portsmouth where they came with the Sultan of Zanzibar. And so because my grandparents were very good friends with the Sultan and their community, they all moved together to Portsmouth, which is actually an island as well. It's an island within an island. Mm -hmm. um, and so I grew up there. And I never understood why they chose it. Apparently, it reminded them of Zanzibar. I'm not sure why. There are no palm trees. There is no sandy beaches. There is an ocean, though. There is an ocean, and yeah. it is an island. And I think it was just because it was a very small place. They were the first kind of foreigners to come there. So they were excited that they could just build their community again. Um, and so, yeah, I grew up there and then back and forth to Oman to see my father's family and the rest of my mother's extended. And we just kind of all spread out. And you, I mean, you didn't set out to be a chef or, no. I mean, you used to have like a major big job in government, right? Yeah, or, yeah. And like I was so, doing all sorts of things. So I actually, so I studied fashion and marketing because okay. I always wanted to work in the fashion industry. Then halfway through my degree, I was like, I hate this. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to be in this industry. How do I get out? Yeah. So I just finished my degree because I had no clue what I wanted to do. But it was during my uni days that I started exploring food and also started to explore being Omani and understanding what that meant. Um, and then what happened was I left, I moved to Holland to get away from London for a bit. I started working communications and actually I, that's when I started like doing communications for embassies and working directly for them. And then I moved back to England um, because that's when I was like, I want to do something in food. England is going to be the place and London will be the place to help me do that. And at the same time, I started working with um, the Anglo-Omani Society, which is part of the Omani Embassy in the UK. So completely different aspect. But also it's interesting because it played its part. It actually played a big part in helping me learn about Oman. Mm -hmm. And also the people I met through it were all the people that invited me to their homes in Oman to come and learn about food. So without it, I kind of wouldn't be here either. So yeah, that was kind of wild, but it was along that journey that I also began food at the same time. Mm -hmm. I originally wanted to open a market stall that sold camel burgers and I was going to call it Humps. Hum I think I was going to call it like Humps on Wheels or something. <laughs> oh I don't know. Have you put that idea aside? Yeah, now? I put that yeah. aside. That, that, <laughs> okay, that, good, yeah. that died quite quickly. I think that might be a major step back right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> do you feel closer to like one country more than the other in terms of the food i think it's now becoming a balance in my own way like 
obviously growing up, I was much closer to the Zanzibari side. Mm. Um, mainly because we just, that's all we ate inside the house. My grandma was always cooking it for her friends and the community. Um, and then Omani food came, it's not that it came a lot later because my mum, my mum lived in Oman for like 15 years. So she would cook some dishes at home, but it's, I just wasn't surrounded by it constantly. So then when I started visiting Oman regularly, especially as I got older, I became, I was like, oh, there are so many different types of Omani food. And when I visit my mum's family in Oman, I was like, okay, they cook still a lot of like Swahili and Zanzibari food. Mm. But then I'd go to my dad's side and it was completely different. And so when I began to notice those differences, I was like, I don't understand why is not everyone eating the same Omani food. Mm. Um, So now I feel like I have a real closeness to Omani food, sometimes more than certain Omanis because they don't know that in Salala they cook a certain dish on Eid, but they don't have another dish on Eid, you know? And so Mm. everyone's very divided because it's such a big place um, and so much history. And I feel like I'm the secret one that knows all the little details. Yes. Oh, amazing. Um, And I'm sure you've you've discovered so much while doing this, as you say, more books to come. So (laughs) yes, definitely. Um, That'll be the hard thing. Just I want more. And I wanted to fit everything in there. I was like, no, We'll just, we'll, we'll pair it back, give everyone they really need first. And then were there any dishes that, well, recipes that really, not surprised you, but you, when you, of the, let's say not the 40 that you knew already, but the, yeah. the, the extra 40. Um, yeah, that sort of were really memorable to you or you're like, oh, wow, I'm really glad that I discovered this recipe. That, I think definitely with... When I traveled around Oman, the discoveries that came with it were like astonishing. And so like, for instance, Oman is really known for having shua and shua is regarded as like the national dish. However, it's something that you have on Eid um, and it's like a really big celebration around it. But yet when I was traveling through Oman, I went to different parts of other governorates and I also went all the way down south to Salala. And they don't eat sure. They don't even really, they know about it because they hear about it. It's not their thing at all. And I was like, what? So so what do you eat? And they were like, well, we all have our own things. And that's because we're all broken up into very different tribes that have come from different areas. So one of the discoveries that I loved, or a couple actually, one was in Salala. I spent time cooking um, with a woman called Auntie Fatima who was actually born in a cave in Salala in the mountains. And she was teaching me their Eid dish, essentially, which is called Majin. And basically, Majin is made with, um, Majin is actually the process of dried beef, which they would, um, they basically cut all their beef up into long strips and they dry it out, almost like like when you're making jerky, um, something like that. And they dry it overnight just before Eid. And then what they do with it is they then kind of rehydrate it and cook it with its own fat. And then they make a very kind of sweet curry, which they then add the beef um, into. But because the beef is still dried out, it's, it's beca- actually becomes a little bit chewy, but it's not an offensive chewiness. Yeah. And then they have that with rice and a lot of ghee as well, like fresh ghee, which is super sweet. And that's what they have on Eid. And it was, I really loved it. And it wasn't that the dish was like such a complicated dish or anything. But I love the fact that they just had their own thing and that was so special to them and that was important for them to have on that day. Mm. And I really love that when I went back to Muscat and I kept asking people, do you know Majin? Do you know it? They were like, no, what's that? And we're like, when people from Salala heard that I knew it, they were like, how do you know that? So it was discoveries like that mm. that really were amazing. So when I was testing them, I was determined that I had to do them justice. However, a lot of them to test were really difficult because, for instance, for that recipe, it's a milky curry. 
and they use fresh milk straight from a cow or a camel. Mm -hmm. And that taste of fresh milk, which is super thick and delicious, I just couldn't get. And it took ages to get it, playing with milks and creams until you get there. Mm -hmm. um, so that was quite testing. But yeah, I can yeah, imagine. Yeah. And it I mean, was... if you're using camel milk, it's it's saltier than... Yeah, yeah and that was the, it. Yeah. And I just spent ages, I was like, how am I going to do this? And yeah. I got to points where I thought, I'm not going to be able to add this recipe. But I was like, nope, I need to power yeah. through. We're going to do it. You're like, I need a camel in Portsmouth right <laughs> yes, now. So literally. Milk it. <laughs> when we were in Zanzibar, you, I mean, we had, we had those, those delicious street snacks. And I remember yes. us having like fresh mango with chili salt. Is yes. that in the book? No. no. <laughs> Do you know what? It's not in the book, but it's funny because um, I, I put lots of odes to mangoes in yeah. the books in different okay. ways. Yeah. So like I have um, a mango meringue tart in there, which is an yeah. ode to Zanzibar. And it also is made with coconut milk as well. Um, and so like I've incorporated it in different ways and like the, the, the part of using chili with sour notes so it's funny actually because things like that played on my mind I almost did a mango and chili sorbet mm -hmm. but actually funny enough I'm not a fan of mango and chili sorbet like I love mango and chilies together mm. but for some reason when it comes into a sorbet form I'm not happy about it so I was like how can I add this and it was racking my brains and mm. I had so many recipes like that where I was like do I just chuck this in? Do I just add this in? I was like, no, we're going to leave it. We're going to be clever. We're going to find other ways to do it later. <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's good to be discerning with that. Yeah. Um, I did like that sweet-sour combination throughout all the food that we tried in, yes, in Zanzibar. And, that, yeah. that, and I definitely have that. Like, I've, mm. some of the, um, when we were in Zanzibar, we had that kind of orodio soup, the potato soup, yes, and how yeah. that was always really sour. I made sure to, like, include that and the different elements with it. And mm -hmm. those sour notes actually mimic through some of the other, like, very Omani dishes as well mm -hmm. so yeah it's always there do you remember those delicious um pancake things we had at your aunt's house in zanzibar as we were getting into the tuk-tuk they gave us like a whole bunch of those yes Did yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember them? yes it was the um the vitambua which were yes. like they were like little balls mm. right yes okay yeah. it's funny actually so um i put the other version of them so vitambua are basically a they're like a gluten-free um coconut ball which is made with rice flour but it's not rice flour as such you need to actually soak your rice and blend it yourself and then you mix it with some sugar cardamom and coconut milk and then basically that same recipe just depending on the kind of quantities you can make into balls if you have the specific frying pan that makes them into balls and actually i know um i think it's in 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 denmark and um holland they make something very very similar they use the same kind of machine um which then, is strange yeah, yeah. yeah it's very strange <laughs> yeah. and i i always wondered that but then i've heard that these particular balls that we make are made in India and Indonesia and they also use coconut milk and rice too in their mm. own way. Um, so then you can make them into the balls, but you can also make them into pancakes, which we call chila. Um, and they can also be made into another version called mkatawamimina, which is, mkatawamimina is a Swahili word that literally means bread to, kumimina means to like, Pour, which is strange. Okay, yeah. but I think it means that because when you make this bread, you pour the batter. It's not um, it's not a dough essentially or anything, and so you can make it into all these consistencies just depending on how you want to eat it. So in the book, I've put the measurements and recipe to do chila, the pancake version, and also to do the mkatawa kumimina, which comes out into like a, even though it's a, we call it a bread, it's more like a cake. Um, and then I explain that you can also make them into balls if you have that 
thing because it was really important I loved those yeah and I was like how am I going to get it in there yeah. um so then we decided to do it that way and the actually the the chila version is the one that people really love because it's so easy to make and especially for people that are gluten-free um you can also make them vegan and because we add in eggs sometimes but you can make them vegan so people love it yeah oh great I'm yeah. so glad that's in there because <laughs> I love those um and whenever I've been in Oman I've loved like the way that they use rose water in the food yes. or and all the lovely spices I remember once having like frankincense smoked chicken yeah um have you done anything with uh, no, frankincense you know yeah? I really wanted to add in frankincense but I give it such a hard one because actually we use it sometimes for smoking reasons mm. in our food but frankincense I didn't think well it's not widely accessible True. Not many people know it and it was like one of those things that would be me going to the next level and like I would love to do that and I got I got caught in such a position of the chapter that's Portsmouth is really a chapter that's uh, things I grew up eating in Portsmouth, but also things that kind of made me and they're more me dishes and why um, mm. I eat these things. And so that was my section for experimenting. And I wanted to include frankincense and go a bit wild. But I was like, is this the book to go too wild? Because also for this book, it was really important that I like capture all of Oman mm. um, and try and engage that. But I'm always wanting to add in. I always want to like make desserts with frankincense, especially when you can infuse it in the milks and things. Yeah. Um, but Book yeah. number two. Book yeah. Number two. Yeah. See, we're, we're already there. Yeah. You're wise now. Wild <laughs> yeah. will be the next yes. one. Yeah. When we come back, Dina tells me about her beautiful book cover, her learnings from getting her first book published, and makes us lunch. All of that right after the short break. Davina, let's take a minute to talk about one of my favorite things, cheese. Do you have a favorite kind of cheese, though, or is that too hard a question? Absolutely. I'm not even going down that road. Um, but I know the cheese I want to talk about right now, and that's Parmigiano-Reggiano. I was in Italy earlier this year and found myself surrounded by wheels of them stacked into towers, almost like a skyline. This is at our supplier Zanetti, which is now in its fourth generation, having started in 1900 by Guido Zanetti. His great-grandson Paolo Zanetti gave me a fantastic tour. Most importantly, did you get to try both the Parmigiano-Reggiano and the Grana Padano? Yes, absolutely. I tried various wheels of cheese of different ages, and Paolo really went into detail about like which cheese goes with which dish that you're trying to serve. For a big occasion, like uh, together with... Uh very good Italian uh, red wine or uh, you know, champagne is good to have a very well mature Parmigiano Reggiano, like a three years old Parmigiano Reggiano. If you want uh, uh, products to be created on pasta, uh, like 16 months old uh, uh, Grana Padano is very good. And uh, as a table cheese or as an appetizer cheese or as a piece of cheese, I used to have a Parmigiano Reggiano, well mature Parmigiano Reggiano, like three years old Parmigiano Reggiano. So the next time you're serving something special for your friends or family or just indulging in a slice of pizza or leftover pasta for breakfast, grate some of our Spinney's Food Parmigiano Reggiano or Grana Padano today. Welcome back. I'm Tiffany Eslick and you're listening to Nourished by Spinney's and my conversation with Dina Mackey, author of Bahari. 
I know that you went out and did a couple of shoots with your photographer yeah. in Oman. Tell me, tell me about that and that experience. So um, Patricia Niven, that's her name. She's lovely, Patsy. Um, she's Australian and she is based in London. And I had seen her work on a couple of other books. And I was like, I really want to work with her. She came, she actually came along with her little 18-month-old baby as well. That was a whole experience. Gosh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like a whole experience. But I was like, if there's one place you can bring a baby with you, it'll be Oman. And it was true because mm-hmm. everyone took the baby and was having fun with the baby while we were taking photos. Yeah. Um, but that was really special because obviously I notice like beautiful shots when I'm in Oman. But when you take someone who's not from the country and their job is to take beautiful photographs. The things she noticed as we were driving, even when we were just driving along, and I'm like, how did you see that shot? And the photos were stunning. And I'm so glad that my publishers like let her come with me because if we didn't, you, we wouldn't have got that magic. Mm-hmm. And I think that was really important because as much as it's a cookbook, we've also said it's like a travel book because it really helps you like understand Oman and bring it to life. And mm. yeah, the photos like, oh, they they just, they really bring the stories yeah together. I just a page through this beautiful book just before this recording. <laughs> uh, thank you for bringing it to me. And I think she does, the photos really do encapsulate, I mean, both destinations, but yeah, yeah I mean, it's just, she gets, she does get that magic. You're right. Yeah. Um, so, and it's so nice to see pics of your mum and your, your yeah, grandmother. That yeah. Was, that was so important. The mm-hmm. first thing I said to my publishers when I got the deal, I was like, I want a photo of my mum and my grandmother and I'm not like changing that. They need to be in there. Yeah. Um, so they came along to one of the photo shoots that we did. I also brought my mum to Oman when I came with the photographer so she could be in that experience too. Yeah. Um, and then I also included loads of old photos, which was so important. And I just love it because I like to look at photos and I think it's so nice when you can put faces to the stories that I'm telling as well. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so Bibi, your grandmother, yeah. I mean, we all know her from social media (laughs) who's probably like your harshest critic but also like the person the most proud of you right what has her feedback been on the book oh well she has loved it like she keeps every time I bring it to her she just keeps like flicking through looking through it and then she sees photos of herself when she didn't wear a scarf and when she used to wear little mini skirts and she's like why are you showing everyone this (laughs) and I'm like everyone needs to see she's like no my legs are out but I think she secretly loves it she's secretly been enjoying her fame Um, I think she thinks it's her book okay yeah because a lot of the recipes are hers and I do mention her name quite a bit yeah and so I think this is like I think if she could have done anything, she would have opened up a restaurant if she had had the chance. And so she's always telling me, like, you need to do something like that. And so I think when she saw this book, it felt like she got to make it as well. And she definitely did. Like, if she wasn't there telling me and shouting at me about every single recipe, we wouldn't be here. So <laughs> yeah. we got there. Thanks, Phoebe. Thanks for shouting. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm looking at the stunning cover. And was this a mission to get to? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. How did was. you go about picking a final cover? Oh, this is insane. It was such an insane process. So when I first started, all of this I gave my publishers like two requirements I said no faces on the book and no food on the book and like obviously no food is already like wow why don't you want food on the book and my reasoning was at first I always just wanted a beautiful cover and I love illustrative covers them I really wanted a coffee table book just something that was beautiful and made you go why has it got that cover I'm gonna open it up um and also then as I started the process of like cooking all of this food I was like actually there isn't one food that can sum up Omani cuisine so I it just didn't make sense and I was like so I don't want any I don't want something to just represent Omani cuisine um and then I didn't want people on the cover I don't like it when you you just have your face there. I was like I don't want my face there it's not going to make sense and also like even if I had other Omanis on the cover it doesn't make sense because not 
to Omani looks the same. Mm. Like, you know, yeah. even me and my siblings, we don't look the same. So I w- I just felt like Omani is made up of so many different people when you bring into all of the other places like Zanzibar as well. Um, so I was like, it just has to be illustrative. And it took a while to get there. And everyone, like every so often, the artists would try and bring in some food. And I was like, no, no food. Like, why are we going back there? We, we went through a series, I think like this must have been the fifth kind of um, option. And it was getting really close to everything happening to be like signed off. And I went into a massive panic. And then I was like, we need to use the title. Why are we not using this title and like working around that? I was like, let's get the C in there. I started trying to like use AI to help me. I'm just like typing things into AI. Like, hi, can you help me make something that's about the ocean, but like abstract? And we're getting nowhere. Um, so then I was just, I said, to the, I said to the team, I was like, please, just something that reflects the ocean. And then I happened to have taken a trip to Goa in May and it was just a break after the photographer had left Oman and I was like, okay, we're coming to the end of this book. And while I was there, I was actually, it was, I feel like it just sounds like some stupid movie when I say it, like some, some cliche movie, but I was literally standing at the Indian Ocean and the beach was so orange and the sand was so orange. And then the sea was just like, it just came, it, it's a really strong current. And I was just watching it and I was standing there and I took a picture of my feet on the sand and you could see the ocean there too. And I sent it to my publishers and I was like, this is the cover. I was like, mindless my feet. <laughs> I was like, we don't need feet in it. I was like, but this is it i was like you know one of the biggest things about oman's history is the portuguese came from uh goa and india and they settled in muscat and it was they were that was part of uh, the portuguese had muscat and so they were there and then they came down to zanzibar as well so the portuguese were also there and i the one thing i was like it's strange i was like this current the, everything I talk about is about how this current has carried people all, from Oman all the way down to the Swahili coast. This is what I talk about constantly. The same ocean that I'm standing at in Goa will reach Oman at some point. And I was like, this is what the cover needs to be. And so when I sent it to them, we like played with, they played around with it. We actually had the sandy part at the top mm-hmm. at one stage. And then what we really liked, I was like, no, I was like, let's move it to the bottom. But what I really did like is even if you turn it upside down, it's like you've got the sunrise and then the sea, or you can have the sand at the other side. And so I was like, let's make it like that. And he played around them. They played around the guy who did it. He managed to get there. And yeah, yeah it was really stunning. Special. Yeah. Thank, thank you. goodness you went on that trip. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, it's beautiful. So tips to anyone who really, really wants to do their own book. Oh, start writing a proposal. I tell everyone don't do it. Okay. (laughs) Like, just don't do it. No, Um, it's hard work. And like, I know people tell you it's hard work and people told me it was hard work, but they also made it seem like it was super, super fun. And I was like, oh, it's going to outweigh it. No, the hard work outweighs the fun. I can't lie. Like, I would be crazy if I would lie on that one. I would do it again. But I would do it again and really like give myself time and know that if you want to do other work alongside it, you need to be prepared that you're not going to be able to give that other work like a thousand percent because the book generally like you it really becomes your life. And I think like don't ever don't ever feel pressured um, like by your publishers when you're doing it. Just do what you really want to do. And your publishers will understand when you explain yourself. I think that became really important for me. Um, also, like it's never 
the end until the book goes to print. That's one thing I learned because there was little tiny things I remembered like just before it was going to print. Oh no, quickly change this. Um, so that was important. I think like spend time doing your research before, do not get straight into it. Like the more that you can do before, the easier that like the workload becomes. Um, but also on that note, like also trust your publishers because they've done this a thousand times over. And sometimes I just went to them. I was like, what do you guys think? Like what's actually going to make people want to open this book? Mm. And that was really important to like kind of trust their judgment a lot on it because they know what they're doing. Um, but I think like, yeah, I think you have to really want to do it and it has to be really true to you mm. and you shouldn't just do it because it sounds fun because <laughs> it's not, it's crazy. <laughs> And you can laugh about it afterwards. Yes, yeah. you can. Uh, should we get cooking? Yes. Yes. Okay, yay. So this is where you guys made the Kups Marduf and the Samaki Wakupaka. Yes. And Dina also made a delicious homemade baharat mix. Yeah. And so did Troy, if you remember. He bought a homemade baharat mix when we went out to barbecue. Exactly. And that's when the whole Baharat Bay episode happened. Sprinkle and or throw some baharat like at it. Like baharat bay or like... Yeah, yeah. Oh, don't say that word. <laughs> Anything but bay. Anything, <laughs> anything but that one. Yeah. And that's on our bonus episode with Troy, which was out in November. So it should be a couple of episodes before this one in your podcast app. Okay, so back to Dina. Let's talk about some of the recipes. So yeah. today we're going to make two. So we have two. So we're doing one called marduf. And mm -hmm. marduf is a date parata. Um, and that's something that we mainly make in Muscat. And I've only really seen it amongst my father's family. So like people that come from Bahraini tribes. Um, and I've seen it amongst a few other people, but they are all mainly Muscat based. Um, and so it's something really like special to me because... I don't get to eat it everywhere unless I'm coming to visit one of my aunts, my dad's side. And I love it because we basically um, just macerate the dates and then add it into the dough when you're making the parata dough. And it brings out just a beautiful hint of sweetness. Not too much, not too strong, but it's enough that you could actually still eat the date parata with a curry if you wanted because okay. it balances really beautifully. Um, and I also love the speckles it creates in the layers with the parata. And you make them square instead of um, like round ones as well. So it's quite easy to do all the layers in them. I went through a phase where I'd actually make it with coconut milk because in Zanzibar, when we make our parata or chapati there, we use coconut milk. So I started doing that until my aunt told me off. She was like, no, we don't do that. And, so, and I love that about Oman. Everyone's like, no, 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 no. You don't change the recipe. This is this is how we do it. Let them do it over there that way. Um, so that's the first one. It's, it's, a, it's a delicious bread, really easy to make. And yeah, I, th I think I actually used to hate making breads because everyone makes it seem so scary mm. and hard work. But this is definitely an easy one um, and easy to just make loads and then freeze them, which okay. is great. Yeah. Um, and then the other dish, which I, I think was really great. And when we were discussing the dish, I was like, yeah, it makes so much sense from our Zanzibar trip. So um, it's samaki wakupaka and this is actually a dish that I realized I put in the coastal section. Um, I say the coast because actually most of Kenya also make this dish and in Tanzania they make it. They tend to make it a lot with chicken but we are doing it with fish and it's basically like a, a baharat basted fish and then you grill that. We're using red snapper and you can use sea bream, sea bass. Uh, we actually tried it with salmon in England and it was also delicious with that. 
and you just grill it and then what you also do at the same time is you make um, something we call a tui and it's basically a coconut and lemony sauce with lots of chili and onions um, and it's super delicious and then what you do with it is once your fish is almost cooked through you start to pour on the sauce on top of the fish and grill it more and it will thicken on the fish Mm -hmm. and then you reserve the rest and you have that with some rice uh, and it's absolutely delicious one of my favorite things and it's a really good crowd please I've done it for a couple of supper clubs and Mm -hmm. it goes down like a treat like there's no one that doesn't love it Um, and it's something that you can do with the whole fish fillets yeah absolutely gorgeous Great. I can't wait to try those. Um, so uh, one last question, which we ask everybody on our podcast because we called Nourish. Um, what <laughs> nourishes your soul? Do you know what? I think like I spent a lot of my childhood not knowing what it was like to be Omani and always trying to be very English and fit in. And now what nourishes my soul is really just like in like ingraining myself in my culture and other people's cultures like that really nourishes my soul like wherever I go somewhere I just want to be with the people because then I can really understand them I don't know it gives me some sort of peace of mind and it makes me feel yeah like really nourished oh that's actually so true about you having spent a lot of time with you you are I've watched you just go up and chat to anyone and what you learn from others yeah that's inspiring so thank you for that thank you You can pre-order Dina's book, Bahari, before the 1st of February and buy it post that at Kinokunya in the UAE and on Amazon. There's a link in our show notes. This episode was brought to you by Spinney's and is hosted by me, Tiffany Eslick, and Davina Devecha. We're produced by Chirag Desai. You can follow Spinney's on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok for more. And visit us at spinneys.com, where you can shop for fresh produce and a variety of local and exclusive products. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode that's all about Japanese tea culture with Victoria Toma. See you then.